You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It is December 2nd. Wow. Already December. I got a great show for you this week. It's going to be a little bit different. If you remember last year, if <laughs> any of you listened to me last year, <laughs> in December I brought you a story or a song, and I sort of riffed on it for a little while on sort of giving those Christmas standards, if you will, a satanic twist. Well, today I'm going to do that a little bit. I'm going to overlap a little, you know, a couple few things that I did last year, but I mean, the reality is a lot of you didn't actually listen to my last year episodes, and even if you did, you probably didn't catch them all. And if you did, thank you. Uh, But if not, this is what I'm doing this week. I'm going to give you a song that I'm going to sort of break apart a bit, And through that, in The Devil's Advocate, give you a little bit of background about Saturnalia, a Christmas origin story, if you will. It's going to be a little bit of fun, maybe not for your ears, but for the rest of your body. (laughs) It'll be delicious. Uh, And for me, it'll be a little bit fun, you know, break up the monotony of just me ranting every single episode. I think you'll afford me that. And uh, in The Infernal Informant, I have pushback. Israel withholds Palestine... Palestinian review, that is, approves new settlements. That's funny because they're approving illegal settlements. But they are new, I'll give them that. And did Citizens United help Democrats in 2012? (laughs) I'm going to give you the Atlantic's perspective, but I'm going to say, hell yes. And in the creature feature, Predatory Moon. This is a new independent movie headed up by the amazing Shiva Rodriguez, writer, director, and she has behind her a crew of uh, some very amazing, talented individuals. I'm going to be talking to her, and we're going to give you a little bit of the scoop, a little rundown on what Predatory Moon is and how you can be a part of it. Pretty big deal. And that's going to be the standard show. Before I dive into it, Nine Cents presents Satanists on Satanic Cinema. The Ninth Gate is out! It is out! It is at uh, Amazon MP3, it's at Google Play, it's at CD Baby, it's even at iTunes, though, as with the first episode, iTunes is screwing me around on the price. I tell them to go 99 cents, they kick it up to 9.99. I tell them to go down to their minimum, they put it at 1.99, and if I can get them to do that, I'll be okay, but they're probably going to do it like last time and kick it back up to 13.99 and then back down, and it's going to be a nightmare. Um... I'm a fan of Apple products in general, but the pricing in iTunes is really giving me a headache and making it so I don't ever want to do any business with them at all. It's pretty absurd that they set minimum pricings based on length of product or content. Um, why, <laughs> why do they care? But they do. They do. So if you want to buy it on iTunes, please have a little bit of patience. I will let you know as soon as it's available at the accurate lowest iTunes price, which is 199 
Uh, so bear with me there. But you can actually pick it up everywhere else at 99, or I'm sorry, at 99 cents. And I'm currently editing the next one with Magistrate Peggy Nadramia. We watched Horror Hotel, or uh, the American version of the film City of the Dead, with Christopher Lee. We waxed wise throughout the whole thing and brought up some interesting uh, parallels with Satanism, uh, what's really satanic in the movie, cutting the cake. It'll make sense when you see it. And uh, a little bit of a statement at the end. So look forward to that. It was amazing. I got to tell you, um, I, I joined the Church of Satan at the end of 97, or maybe it was early 98, but it was, it was that window. I was stationed in uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky at the time. And it, well, I mean, I joined because I wanted to be a part of uh, the organization that represented what I identified myself as. I saw that as important, so I did. One of the most amazing parts of the chapter of me being a Church of Satan member is meeting, even though it's online, um, members of the hierarchy and members of the greater satanic world out there, meaning other Satanists in the world. Up until that point in 97, 98, I hadn't met any actual Satanists, a lot of pseudos. Um, and I gotta say, uh, Megas Peter H. Gilmore and Magistra Peganadramia are fantastic people, and I've reached out to them probably more than I should have for this show, uh, and personal projects, and, you know, other things I have going on, and, and to get Peganadramia on my uh, Satanists on Satanic Cinema episode was a huge deal, and it was a lot of fun, and I really, truly hope you guys enjoy that one. But until that's ready, it's going to be around the end of December, I do highly recommend and surely, strongly suggest The Ninth Gate. It, uh, I sat down with Satanist Storm and Satanist J.R. Torina, two Utah Devils, fantastic gentlemen. I'm very happy to call them friends and to know them personally. And, uh, you know, have given them some of my own homebrew. <laughs> it's nice. It's nice being able to, uh, you know, offer something that you created yourself to those that you, uh, you respect and admire. Well, anyway, we watched The Ninth Gate, which is an amazing movie. And, uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. A lot of really, really great back and forth banter. Uh, something that you're used to hear from me, but to hear it from others, it, it's really amazing. And, uh, you know what, they bring up some really nice perspectives on scenes and characters in the movie that I think are worthwhile. So, if you can, drop the dollar and check it out. And if you can't, <laughs> you're just going to have to miss out, sorry. <laughs> Alright, so I was, this is one thing I wanted to touch on today, um, because of a number of things that had happened over this past week. So those of you who listen to the show regularly know that I am a graphic designer professionally and I work in an advertising agency and we do a lot of um, commercial real estate and um, sport clothing uh, projects, ads, websites, stuff like that. We've been dealing lately with, um, and I hope I don't get in trouble for saying it, but Halty Clothing and they just opened up a... Um, they just released a distribution deal with Jans recently. Uh, the website's haltyworld.com. And uh, 
I had a lot to do with setting up this site, but Halty wanted to let everyone know that the website is very much US centric, which is a big deal, and not so much um, worldwide or Euro Central European centric, which is where they are from and, and used to. Um, so they asked one of the things was um, maybe letting people know that the website is USA specific by putting up the American flag. And so the account coordinator sent me an email saying, hey, let's put an American flag on the website and let people know that when they go to the website because of the American flag that they will know that it is the US site. And I said, hell fucking no. And it's because the American flag means something. And not just to me, but to an awful lot of other dead people who fought and died for that flag to remain in existence initially, and then to its core values. And I've often tried to rationalize and tried to really get to the bottom of why I have this strange reaction. Because when she, it's a stupid, simple request. Can you put a flag on the website? And I, I, I was so taken aback by the request. I was so offended to my core by the request. Because what it's saying is that you can use this symbol of pride and freedom for commercial success or a message to get across. And that is insulting to me at, at so many levels. I don't, I don't fully understand why. Um, but it really, it really bothered me. And the more I thought about it, the more upset I got. And I mean, I, I'm diplomatic at work. So, you know, I let them know that there's no fucking way in hell that I will ever put an American flag on a commercial website just to send a message or, or anything like that. It means much more than that to me. So if they need it done, they're going to have to get me out of the picture or they're going to have to find another way. And I think we came up with a, a pretty decent compromise. But I'm always caught off guard by that. Um, I, I was first caught off guard heavily when my son's school was raising the flag when I was dropping him off one day. And I, I spoke to this last year at some point in the spring, I think. And he asked um, why I was standing there and why he, he why I made him put his hand over his heart and, and look you know, face the flag. And I told him at the moment, uh, respect. That's why. Respect. And I found myself, and I had never really experienced this before, choking back tears over something as absurd, something as plain as children raising the American flag in front of an elementary school. It, it did really affect me, and, and it let me know that there is a connection that I have with my country that's deeper than what I thought it was, I guess. Um, and so the second part of this was a bit of a, a realization. So if you will um, bear with me through this patriotic banter for a second. So my wife and I went to go see the movie Lincoln last night. Which, if you haven't seen it, or if you're planning on going to see it, I highly suggest it. If you like politics, like me, you'll love it. If you like American history, uh, I'm a fan. 
then you're going to love it. Uh, if you like just good drama and good character development, acting mainly, you, you will definitely like it. If you don't like any of those, then definitely avoid it. Um, so we went and saw it, and I was struck by how poignant it was politically, even to today. And uh, how much truth is wrung in... in when, when you're a leader, when you are a man of influence... You cannot just tow a party line, and you cannot just tow law. You have to fudge reality in order to put your mark on existence. And Lincoln is one of those gentlemen who, it could be argued, did some very illegal maneuvering, uh, lawyering, as it were. I mean, he was. But in my opinion, to the better of humanity. And this is really to the core of what I wanted to speak to. When one of the amazing things about Satanism, and now it may not mean as much because we live in our world now, but imagine if you could in the 60s when Anton LaVey was forming, when he was first codifying, um, the Church of Satan. Put your place in, in, or put your mind in that place of, of bigotry, of learned hatred. Um, and, and this is something that I can't really fault anyone for. I mean, if you were raised your whole life to hate Nazis, it's understandable that you would hate Nazis without having ever met one. Um, it's, it's a learned behavior. And so, uh, being taught your whole life that black men and women were subhuman, you would think that way. Your father, your mother, your brothers, your uncles, your preachers, they all taught you to think that way. So there, it's not your fault that you were indoctrinated, but there were men and women able to look past that. Anton LaVey was one of these people. He was one of the first, if not the first, organized religion to look at homosexuals and say they are human beings, and if they are Satanists. I should say, let, let me put it this way, because I'm, I'm sort of going off rails here. He was the first person to look at Satanists and say they happen to be gay. They happen to be black. We were born this way. This transcends ethnicity. This transcends nationality. This transcends sexuality. We were born Satanists. Why would we push other Satanists away or try to push them down? Because they happen to be gay or they happen to be black. Or pick your ethnicity. Satanism is the first religion to say meritocracy independent respect, standing on your own two feet, being a grown human being that transcends the herd. That's what's important. And that's what I connected with when I was watching this because, uh, you know, cinematically, they have to sort of elevate um, the air and importance of a film. And so when they were speaking to um, blacks, and the shock 
that blacks could possibly have the right to vote in the future, or women could possibly have the right to vote in the future, that the 13th Amendment to the uh, um, Constitution was a doorway to that end, and how shocked and appalled uh, the majority of the Democrats were, and, and even some of the Republicans in that um, House were at that pure thought. Church of Satan, years later, after that amendment was passed, is still one of the first religions to say it doesn't matter. If you're a Satanist, that's what matters. And through that, I get a clearer picture about why the American flag and why American history and the progress we have made as a country has such a powerful impact on the way I see the world. I associate America with Satanism. That idea that it is your personal behaviors that make you a failure as a human or a success, that make you worthy of a nod in the morning or just me walking on by. It is your actions, the responsibilities that you take, the basic respect that you provide the other human beings on this planet until they wrong you. That is what I associate. And I may be way off base for some of you, but for me, Satanism and America, they got, they're holding hands, man. They are right there together. Um, I don't know. I just thought I should mention that. Um, it moved me during the week. It was something that had a profound impact on, on my state of mind. I go through these moments and I don't, I don't know why. I'm sure you do too, where you just have an experience and you have to reflect on it for a moment. You have to examine it because <laughs> these moments are what define us as human beings. It may be not be a large part of us. It may not change the course of our lives, but it is certainly something that happens, and we think, wow, that genuinely affected me uh, emotionally or, or uh, personally. And, and yeah, um, that flag request and the movie Lincoln both affected me. And it sort of pushed me to this, this understanding that I just shared with you. Interesting stuff, right? Um, well, <laughs> let me stop. Holy shit, I'm almost 20 minutes in here. Um, let's go ahead and dive into The Devil's Advocate with a little bit of Saturnalia, a little bit of a song. Bear with me, if you will. If you don't want to hear it, eh, skip forward to the interview. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll see you in a minute. Say why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? It don't lie to me. I guess, father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul, and it becomes clear. Like it did for me, the first time. 
That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm an active member in the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. This discussion is going to be wrapped around Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. That's right. And this was composed by Hugh Martin. Lyrics by Ralph Blaine. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure this is going to infuriate a lot of you. Uh, but bear with me. It's supposed to be a little bit of fun, right? <clears throat> Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yule tide gay. From now on our troubles will be miles away. Yule tide gay. Yule tide. It's not Christmas, right? And so you have to ask yourself, if they're referencing Yule in the same song that they're referencing Christmas, well, what's the message that they're actually sending? It's this great idea that you don't have to worry about your troubles on Christmas. You don't have to worry about uh, uh, problems in your life at all because they're down the road somewhere. It's, it's taking you out of your head and putting you somewhere else. But where did that come from? It did come from somewhere. And I'm going to give you. So I'm taking this actually from uh, a website, simpletoremember.com. And there's a, a bunch of uh, resources for this information. How did Christmas come to be celebrated on the 25th? And it goes as follows. Roman pagans first introduced the holiday Saturnalia, a week-long period of lawlessness celebrated between December 17th and the 25th. During this period, Roman courts were closed, and Roman law dictated that no one could be punished for damaging property or injuring people during the week-long celebration. The festival began when Roman authorities chose an enemy of the Roman people to represent the Lord of Misrule. Each Roman community selected a victim whom they forced to indulge in food and other physical pleasures throughout the week. At the festival's conclusion, December 25th, Roman authorities believed they were destroying the forces of darkness by brutally murdering this innocent man or woman. Your troubles will be far away if you have a week of lawlessness and murder. How? <laughs> How grand when you see Christmas in this light. It's funny, and I always speak to this idea that we live in the 21st century. We think of history from the 21st century, not from when it happened. And if you look at history, if you can take a step back out of your cell phone connected lives for a second, and look at the human motivations for actions in the past, then this idea of Islamic Judeo-Christianity is so absurd and insane. Uh, and Saturnalia is amazing. Now, of course, we live in a society that frowns upon 
murder. <laughs> Even though, uh, symbolically in the ritual chamber, uh, it's something else entirely. Um, <laughs> by all means. But, actual murder? I don't think so, Tim. Illegal. There's obvious rational reasons not to do it, uh, aside from moral ones. Um, however, back <laughs> in Roman era, and we're talking like the fourth century, um, they were all for it, and it was okay. And that's what this time of year meant. It was celebrating lawlessness. It was putting all of those troubles in your fist. Finding a scapegoat. Creating a scapegoat. And forcing them to do all the things that you have been restricting yourself from doing. Intensified by ten. And at the end killing them for it now we look at this and say oh, how barbaric how horrible how, how insane they were not us we have to remember this the ancient greek writer poet and historian lucian in his dialogue entitled saturnalia describes the festival's observance in his time in addition to human sacrifice he mentions these customs widespread intoxication i'm a fan going from house to house while singing naked. I'm a fan. Rape and other sexual license. Not so much. Eh, other sexual license, eh, you know, depending. And consuming human-shaped biscuits. Still produced in some English and most German bakeries during the Christmas season. Where do you think the gingerbread man came from? Human-shaped biscuits? We eat them. <laughs> Santa would be proud. <laughs> In the 4th century CE, Christianity imported the Saturnalia festival, hoping to take the pagan masses in with it. Christian leaders succeeded in converting the Christian large numbers of pagans by promising them that they could continue to celebrate the Saturnalia as Christians. Could you imagine that? I mean, we have to remember that those early years of Christian of legal let me clarify that. Those early years of legal Christianity uh, were heralded in by Emperor Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, and after they had a couple of those meetings at Nicaea, to unify then widespread dissonant separate congregations, if you will, of what Judeo-Christianity was. He paid them a large sum of money to agree, and to come up with a unified code of what Christianity should be. Now, this would prove to be the downfall of all Roman history, but he was trying to unify a failing nation. Understandable. I get it. Whether he believed it or not, well, that's up to the historians. I don't personally think he did, Constantine. Um, but he wrote a good story about it. Uh, he was convincing, through the military and the strength of arms, to convince uh, the rest of his people to embrace it. And they even convinced you, and you have to understand that Judaism has a lot of ritual sacrifice in it already. So this celebration of Saturnalia, that's not too far from where Christianity came from, which was Judaism. So the idea, selling the idea of human sacrifice to Christians, not a problem. No, no, no. Not to what real Christians were at that time. The problem was that there was nothing intrinsically Christian about Saturnalia. 
To remedy this, the Christian leaders named Saturnalia's concluding day, December 25th, to be Jesus' birthday. And it's important to note, um, for all of you historian buffs, even now, Jesus was not seen as a god. He was not seen as God's son. That was put in later. This was just a dude. And there had been hundreds, if not thousands, before him, claiming and doing the same things. Christians had little successes, however, refining the practices of Saturnalia. As Stephen Nissenbaum, professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, writes, in return for ensuring, I'm sorry, ensuring massive observance of the anniversary of the Savior's birth by assigning it to the resonant date, the church, for its part, tactically agreed to allow the holiday to be celebrated more or less the way it had always been. The earliest Christmas holidays were celebrated by drinking, sexual indulgence, singing Naked in the Streets, a precursor to modern caroling, etc. I'll tell you what, if there was a group of young church women knocking at my door, singing some carols and asking for pig, figgy pudding, I would guarantee goddamn tea, I would come up with some figgy fucking pudding. <laughs> I mean, I don't even have figs in the house, but I guarantee I will provide something. <laughs> I will bring it to you. Just come a knockin' naked. I will listen to your shitty songs if you come a knockin' naked. <laughs> hey, I'm just observing the original form of Christmas, right? I'm the bad guy? Alright, and, and drinking, it's a staple. Maybe not to excess, but nothing wrong with having a glass of wine. And sexual indulgence? <clears throat> that is necessary, in my opinion, between consenting adults. <laughs> Yeah, man, this is the holidays. This is what it originally was. Revel, there is nothing more satanic between the drinking, between the indulgence. It's it's whatever is mentally or physically gratifying. These are the sins that Anton LaVey spoke to in the Nine Satanic Statements. The Reverend Increases Mather of Boston, I'm sorry, it was just Increase Mather of Boston, observed in 1687 that the early Christians who first observed the Nativity on the 25th did not do so thinking that Christ was born in that month, but because the heathens' Saturnalia was at that time kept in Rome, and they were willing to have those pagan holidays metamorphosed into Christian ones. Because of its known pagan origin, Christmas was banned by Puritans, and its observance was illegal in Massachusetts between 1659 and 1681. However, Christmas was and still is celebrated by most Christians. Shocking. Yeah, and I always love those Christians that look at Puritans like they were wonderful people. Burning witches at the stake. <laughs> witches. Um, forsaking the carnal indulgence of Saturnalia, or at the time, it was called Christmas. Some of the most depraved customs of the Saturnalia carnival were intentionally revived by the Catholic Church in 1466 when Pope Paul II, for the amusement of his Roman citizen, forced Jews to race naked through the streets of the city. An eyewitness account reports before they were to run, the Jews were richly fed, so as to make the race more difficult for them, at the same time, more amusing for the spectators. They ran amid Rome, taunting and shrieking and peals of laughter, while the Holy Father stood upon a richly ornamented balcony 
and laughed heartily. Ah, the true origin of Christianity. As part of the Saturnalia Carnival through the 18th and 19th centuries CE, rabbis of the ghetto in Rome were forced to wear clownish outfits and march through the city streets to the jeers of the crowd, pelted by a variety of missiles, while the Jewish community of Rome sent a petition in 1836 to Pope Gregory the 16th, begging him to stop the annual Saturnalia abuse of the Jewish community. He responded, It is not opportune to make any innovation. On December 25, 1881, Christian leaders whipped the Polish masses into anti-Semitic frenzies that led to riots across the country. In Warsaw, 12 Jews were brutally murdered, huge numbers maimed, and many Jewish women were raped. Two million rubles worth of property were destroyed. That, my friends, is Christmas. Uh, so, you have to remember. Here we are, as in olden days, happy golden days of yore. <laughs> Faithful friends who are dear to us, gather near to us once more. And through the years we all will be together. If the fates allow, hang a shining star upon the highest bough. And have yourself a merry Saturnalia now. <laughs> it's amazing! Listen up! Listen up! Hey, out there! Good news! There's no devil! Bad news! Else, no heaven! There's nothing to see! I'm your fellow informant! All right, this is from the Christian Science Monitor. Pushback. Israel withholds Palestinian revenue. Approves new settlements. The Israeli moves came in response to the Palestinians' successful bid to be recognized at the United Nations as a state. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government struck a $120 million blow to the cash-strapped Palestinian Authority today and further undermined its territorial claims, announcing plans to move forward with a controversial settlement that would effectively divide the West Bank in two. The moves came in response to Palestinians' successful bid last week to be recognized at the United Nations as a state. After Palestinian Authority, President Mahmoud Abbas received a standing ovation for a speech in which he repeatedly referred to Israel's racist colonial occupation. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today characterized the November 29th UN vote as an attack on Zionism and the state of Israel. God damned right. It is. There is nothing more unnatural by definition than the state of Israel, which was man-made, created, and plucked down onto Palestinian land. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look at history. So yes, <laughs> it is an attack on irrationality. I have no problem with individuals that happen to be Jewish, unless they try to push it on me. I do have a problem with Israel. They're sort of the kid that used to be bullied that became the bully. And now, 
whines about being bullied. <laughs> it's insane. The Israeli moves caught many off guard, including, except for anyone paying any attention to anything Israel has ever done since its creation. <laughs> including some dismayed government officials, and caused some to sound a funeral toll for the peace process. The rhetoric and threats underscore long-standing barriers to peace that persist even as the window for a two-state solution is fast closing with both sides, accusing the other of inciting hatred. But they also reflect the Israeli Prime Minister's upcoming battle to win re-election in a country that has shifted significantly to the political right, even as he is mindful of U.S. pressure to refrain from provocative initiatives. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is now stuck between the anvil and the hammer, says some former Israeli diplomat, uh, Ilan Baruch. He is struggling to keep the right around him in one block, and for that, he needs to pay political currency. So he needs to make noise that sounds like a commitment fulfilled to be very hawkish agenda. The financial punishment. As the custodian of Palestinian Authority tax revenues, Israel wields significant financial leverage over the PA thanks to an annex of the Oslo Accords known as the Paris Protocol. The PA owes Israel roughly 800 million shekels or 210 million dollars in unpaid electricity bills and has yet to pay November salaries. It was counting on the 460 million shekels, or 120 million dollars, in November tax revenues to meet payroll. But today, Israel's Minister of Finance announced that rather than transferring the tax revenues to the PA, it would deduct that amount as a down payment on the PA's overdue electricity bill. While Israel had threatened to withhold tax revenues if the Palestinians pursued their UN bid, it also has expressed concern that the deep and chronic economic crisis in the West Bank could spark greater restlessness, and thus a potential threat to the Israel's security. It's ironic, because <laughs> the restrictions on economic success are created by Israel. Bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you ask me. This is absurd. I grew up in a household, and I live in a country that holds Israel on high. They look at them as if they were Jesus incarnate in this Christian world we live in. And yet, the behaviors, if enacted by anyone else, would be shunned and immediately punished. I'm talking about drones from the clouds. That's America's more recent method of showing dissent to other countries. Um, I wonder how Israel would take it if they had shot down some of drones and realized that it wasn't Iran that sold them to the Hezbollah or to the Palestinians, but in fact it was the U.S. Do you think that they would continue barking their little chihuahua bark as loudly as they do? The self-righteousness has to stop. I give a damn who it comes from. Israel better know fucking better by now. And they don't. So you have to take the next step. 
Sometimes you have to smack people in the face to get their attention. I think it's about time America did that. The territorial blow. On Friday, the day after the UN vote, Israel announced it was authorizing 3,000 new homes in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Illegal homes, I might add. Illegal as defined by the UN and agreed upon by Israel and Palestine, who are now ignoring it. Israel had already registered the highest number of building tenders issued in any year of the past decade, according to an analysis by Peace Now, which opposes settlement construction. Netanyahu's government has issued tenders for the 3,046 new buildings in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, more than double the amount from last year, and five times the number in 2010. It's shocking. If an additional 3,000 tenders are issued by January 1st, tenders this year would total more than 6,000, far outstripping the second highest annual total of the past decade, 2,512 in 03, under former Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, splitting the West Bank. But more concerning to peace proponents was a separate Israel move to advance plans to develop a bubble of land east of Jerusalem known as E1. The area, if developed, would connect East Jerusalem to the largest Israeli settlement, Meil Aduminum, which stretches deep into the West Bank. Such a block of Israel-controlled territory would divide the north half of the Western Bank from the south half and separate both halves from East Jerusalem. Critics say that this would make it impractical, if not impossible, to establish a viable Palestinian state within a capital in East Jerusalem. No move has dictated the borders of Israel-Palestine more conclusively than E1, because this is not something that is incremental, says Daniel Siedemann, an Israeli attorney and founder of Terrestrial Jerusalem, which tracks developments that could jeopardize a two-state solution. This is a game-changer, and possibly a game-ender. Occupied or disputed? Israel conquered East Jerusalem and the West Bank in 1967 war against the Arab neighbors. It has since annexed East Jerusalem and declared Jerusalem to be its eternal and undivided capital. Palestinians refer to the West Bank as occupied and rightfully theirs. After all, accepting a state on pre-1967 border amounts to only 22% of historic Palestine, they say. But Netanyahu's government has taken to calling the territory disputed, and cast the UN vote as unilaterally declaring Palestinian territory to include everything within the pre-1967 borders instead of resolving the precise territory in final status negotiations as called for by the 1993 Oslo Accords. It's taking the territorial parameter and defining the territorial parameter without the Palestinians having to give up on anything. Refugees, demilitarization, any of these issues that are important to us, says Mark Rejev, spokesman for the Prime Minister's office. But Palestinians say the Israel's steady encroachment on East Jerusalem and the West Bank, where the population of Israel has roughly doubled to more than 500,000 since Oslo, is blatant unilateralism. 
I'm sorry, unilateralism. Uh, <clears throat> Israel did not explicitly agree to half-settlement construction in previous peace blueprints, but in the so-called Oslo II agreement in 95, it was agreed that the two sides view the West Bank and the Gaza Strip as a single territorial unit, the integrity and status of which will be preserved during the interim period. Palestinians and their supporters argue the growth of settlements and the related infrastructure, such as roads, are undermining the integrity of the West Bank and thus the prospects of a two-state solution. I don't see settlement activity as compatible with the part of the Oslo II, says Mr. Siedemann. For me, this is all about pizza. You order a pizza, and the pizza comes. And you talk about how do you divide the pizza, except that one side can eat the pizza while negotiations are going on. Does that augur well for a fair division of the pizza? I hate it when people use food examples, um, but I think it paints a good picture. Israel is out of their fucking minds. Seriously, they are out of their damn minds. Um, this is my opinion. No one else's. I do not represent anyone but myself. Um, but, yes. The Jewish people have had, in its history, hundreds of years, hundreds of years, and they may say thousands, of um, shit pushed onto them i give a fuck because right now they are doing it to palestine and it's ironic because they are complaining while they are punishing other people taking their land that they are being <laughs> the ones ostracized that they are the victims here why does anyone have to be a victim? Stand on your own two feet, act like a responsible human being, and you don't have to be a victim. It's a choice that you're making. And what Israel is saying to the rest of the world is that no matter what, no matter how much in authority and power that they are exercising or standing in, that they are victims. And so they have the right to continue victim status. Let me tell you something. Pretty clear in the world. They are no victims. Haven't been for a long time. They are the bully on the street. And I would argue that the threat of Israel to the Palestinians is greater than any threat of Iran, Russia, or China to the U.S. And it's literal because it's happening now. And if you don't see it, you're not looking. There is one cancer in the Middle East, and its name is Israel. Now, it doesn't mean you have to cut it out, but it does mean Israel has to cut it out. Because if they want peace, they have to get off their fucking high horse. By the way, we bought that horse as the UN, and America is backing that horse. And that's the only way that peace will happen. So regardless of how you feel about Hezbollah, regardless of how you feel about Palestine, regardless of how you feel about Iran, regardless of your national affiliation, you have to be able to see that Israel is the one that is pushing the buttons, that is making the problems. They are the ones that are continually creating illegal settlements. They are the cancer. We need to stop feeding the cancer. That's all I'm saying.
Two-state solution is the only solution. And if they continue with these settlements, that will never happen. And the only reason why I care is because America's backing their play, and it infuriates me as an American. All right, so the next article is The Atlantic, Did Citizens United Help Democrats in 2012? Much as they decried the Supreme Court's campaign finance decisions, progressive groups may have exploited it most in this year's election. After a year, Democrats mostly spent fretting, freaking out, and fulminating against Citizens United, the 2010 Supreme Court's decision that unleashed this year's flood of unfettered political spending. It was a bit unexpected to hear Michael Podhorzer, the political director of the AFL-CIO, say on Friday, Super PACs are so awesome. It was long overdue that the Supreme Court recognized that corporations are people like everybody else. But Zor, who spoke on a panel at the Roots Camp left-wing organizing conference, was being sarcastic. Sort of. Progressives still really hate Citizens United. But in one of the most ironic turns of the 2012 election, groups on the left were some of the most skilled exploiters of the 2010 court decision. Take Pedorcers, uh, who got a new title this year, Executive Director of Workers' Voice, the super PAC of AFL-CIO, started in April. Prior to Citizens United, under the uh, 1947 law, unions were only allowed to communicate politically with their own members. They couldn't campaign to the general public. When the Supreme Court was hearing Citizen United and the AFL-CIO actually filed an amicus brief aimed at this provision, it got its wish. The result, Bazorher said, was like, taking off the handcuffs. The FLCIO and other unions conducted door-knocking, phone banking, and advertising campaigns this year aimed at the general public in elections they hoped to influence, and made a big difference. It was a similar story for Credo, a for-profit phone company that supported progressive causes. As a corporation, it was subject to pre-Citizens United campaign finance restrictions and prevented it from spending money in campaigns. But this election cycle, the company formed a super PAC I'm sorry, formed, and targeted 10 vulnerable Republican congressional incumbents with an intensive volunteer-based campaign of field organizing in their districts. Five of them, including Firebrand Florida Republican Alan West, I'm sorry, uh, Representative Alan West, were defeated. Alan West raised $17 million, spent $13 million, and lost by a couple thousand votes. Becky Bond, political director of Credo Mobile and president of the Credo Super PAC, boasted. With just a few hundred thousand dollars, we made the difference. At first, Bond said, the group worried that its members would recoil from the embrace of Citizens United that the super PAC represented. But they found exactly the opposite. We got very little blowback at all, she said. People were very excited that there was our super PAC. People thought the super PAC was super. <laughs> Both Workers' Voice and Credo Super PAC focused on ground organizing and eschewed paid advertising. They saw their ability to use data-based person-to-person campaigning as an asymmetrical advantage against better-funded groups to the right. But another Super PAC on the left, Priorities USA, focused on using television ads to discredit Mitt Romney, despite being massively outspent by GOP groups, including the $300 million-plus raised by Karl Rove's Crossroads groups. Priorities had been widely cited for its superior effectiveness. Its ads helped cement the image of Romney as a corporate raider that would prove such a liability in the general election. 
This may be one of the major takeaways of the 2012 campaign, when liberals learned to stop worrying and love Citizens United. They benefited from it more than the conservatives who supported the decision. Nonetheless, they insist that they'd still prefer the situation and the decision, but reversed. We're against Citizens United. We're trying to overturn it. We would close down every super PAC if we could, Bond said. But with the current state of affairs and campaign finance looking unlikely to change in the near future, progressives are seeing the silver lining. Labor obviously has a lot of money, Portsower said. We could have given it to the priorities in the House Majority Fund. And what would have, uh, what, um, sorry, um, what we would have had on November 7th would be canceled checks. Instead, in its volunteer-powered super PAC, the union has a standing army. Since election, the members of Workers' Voice has kept up the pressure on political swing voting members of Congress, urging them not to compromise on taxes and entitlements on the fiscal cliff talks. What we have now is hundreds of thousands of volunteers and a recognition by a lot of politicians that they need to listen to the people they represent, Pazora said. That's a far better outcome. That doesn't happen when we write checks, no matter how big. Citizens United. Um, I've been railing against this idea um, and this term um, for years, since its uh, inception. The idea that corporations are people. It's interesting that progressives are using it to their advantage. I cannot complain about that, being a, a social progressive myself. Um, however, people learn from history. And if there's one thing you have to understand, and it may be hard for some people to understand, Republicans aren't stupid. Religious people, generally aren't stupid. They organize. By definition, the religions organize. So they will come out again stronger and harder. And they will mask their intentions. They will lie, because that's what religion is, a lie. They have no problem with it. So in my opinion, though it worked for progressives in this election cycle, and in my opinion the last, um, even though Citizens United wasn't around at that point. Um, we need to uh, really cut back on this corporatism in our country. In our country, it is the cancer, in my opinion. And Citizens United really just infused it with strength. And uh, one election, it's not going to change things at all. So let's stop the super PACs. Let's get corporations, let's get big business out of politics. Um, ironically, it never has been. So that's sort of a pipe dream that we play around with as Americans. We, we, we pretend that we are above um, uh, pandering. We pretend that we're outraged by it, but we eat it up. And let's be honest, we, we're suckers as Americans. You give us a good line. We, I mean, why do you think advertising is so brilliant? I'm in advertising professionally. We come up with a tagline that resonates with you. And you eat whatever cancerous food we shove down your throat. Because you remember that tagline. That's the brilliance of human <laughs> beings. Is that we are incredibly stupid. Uh, for just 
little rhythm. <laughs> yeah, so we have to get it out because otherwise we're going to continue eating this shit up. <clears throat> and really, maybe it's going to take a massive influx and the removal of humanity from the election process to really, really turn around what it means to be a human being. And maybe that's not such a bad idea. But um, I, I'm, I'm certainly not a... I'm, I'm not one to encourage a revolution in what I consider to be the uh, most effective country for me to live in right now. Um, so <laughs> maybe I'll hold off on that rhetoric for a bit. <laughs> anyway, uh, super PACs, in my opinion, whether they're on the left, right, middle... I, I don't like them, and I don't think they should be in the business of politics, and I don't think anyone, except for the representatives and their people, should be. But that is my downfall. That is my idealistic dream that is not realistic. Yeah, we all have our faults. And that's going to do it for another Infernal Informant. It was a very long one. Thank you for sitting through it. I know it was a little preachy in the Israel part, but I can't help myself. It's so blatant in my eyes. Um, I do have a really great interview, so I'm going to skip the commercials. Let's dive right into it at the Creature Feature. Oh, God. No. Just me. Did you know that after the heart stops beating, the brain can function for well over seven minutes? We got six more minutes to play. Why are you screaming when I haven't even cut you yet? Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined once again by Shiva Rodriguez. Shiva, thank you so much for joining me. We're here talking about Predatory Moon, your new project. How have you been since we last spoke? Uh, busy. <laughs> really, really, really busy. <laughs> yeah, it certainly seems so. So let's talk about Predatory Moon. I'm really excited about this. I'm a huge werewolf fan. Um, always have been. And uh, last time I talked to you, I really appreciated uh, your sort of uh, hands-on, uh, old-school uh, approach to special effects. And really, I mean, that's sort of, you know, what you do. So I'm really excited to see what you can uh, do with this premise. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, the uh, Predatory Moon is a werewolf movie that I actually wrote the script for a while ago and just kind of stuck in my cabinet because I figured nobody was going to, you know, have the money to make it. But I'd written it to be a challenge because I always wanted to do a werewolf uh, transformation. And um, not too long ago, uh, we were talking about doing something that was going to be kind of like shock and awe in order to get some attention for our film company. And so that thing got pulled out. And next thing I know, I'm getting talked into not only doing the effects, but also directing it. <laughs> so, so it, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be really um, something interesting for everyone. So is there, I, I mean, is this a standard sort of um, werewolf premise of a storyline? Or are you are you uh, sort of changing up and owning it a little bit? Well, it's a little bit of a mixture. I mean, I knew that we couldn't do a werewolf without keeping the standard formula, you know, Hunter tries looking for a beast, beast looks for Hunter, things mm -hmm. like that. But I really wanted to take the approach on the legend a little differently, so I started asking myself questions about, you know, what would it really mean to have lycanthropy? 
mean, how would you, you know, function throughout, you know, the month? And what kind of changes would you go through? And how would, you know, would people notice these changes? And it um, ended up turning into a type of film where, you know, while we keep the horror elements, and of course there's a body count, but we also dive a little bit more into the psychology behind it. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't think... I don't think that's ever been done before in with werewolves. Like I, I'm I'm pretty sure there's a lot of like interview with the vampire. Obviously, you know, dives into that vampire psyche. But but I don't think anyone's ever done it with the werewolf um, that much. What I've seen it I've seen it touched on a little bit. You yeah. know, usually like I think American Werewolf in London. You know, you got the bad dreams and things like that. But yeah, that's I've never true. seen it be really really examined thoroughly. So are you doing it from the, the victim's um, perspective? I, I say victim, the cursed perspective? Um, in part. It's kind of, it, it kind of jumps between, you know, the person who's infected, the people around them, um, and then, of course, the expert, you know, the Van Helsing-type character who knows everything about everything. Yeah, yeah. But between those three stereotypes on the, of the uh, werewolf genre is how we're bouncing the story. Oh, very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to this. Um, but what inspired you to make a werewolf movie versus any other monster flick? Uh, have you seen how many zombie films and vampire <laughs> films and serial killer films are out there in the indie market right now? Indeed. <laughs> so, so that was it. You know, it was just there was a hole to be filled. Um, I decided to do a werewolf simply because when I was, you know, whenever I talked. To you know, directors and producers I know, and I say, hey, when are we going to do a werewolf film? Because I've wanted to do a transformation. Everybody either says they're too difficult or they're too expensive. So I said, okay, fine, I'll do one. Oh, wow. <laughs> so what makes, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I'm a little ignorant on this. What would make a werewolf movie more expensive than any other type? Is it literally well, just the transformation process and the money that goes into that? Well, creature films in general are more expensive because you actually do have to build the creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, when you're, especially when you're working with practical, I mean, vampires, you just throw fangs on somebody and boom, you got a vampire. Mm -hmm. uh, serial killers, you just, you know, throw some blood around. But when you're dealing with creatures, you actually have to design creatures. They have to be something special. Um, a lot of money goes into the effects just to, you know, bring these creatures to life. A transformation is incredibly difficult because you're talking, I think we've got six days scheduled to film our transformation scene. Wow. And a lot of the smaller, you know, low-budget indie films are usually shot within two to four weeks alone, and they don't spend that much time on just one scene. Whoa. So the only, I mean, the only real detailed uh, werewolf transformation I can think of, just off the top of my head, um, is American Werewolf in London. Where, where are you going to draw your inspiration from for yours, and, and are you going to change it up at all? Oh, yeah. Um, actually, a lot of the inspiration as far as how we're going to do the transformation came from Daniel Bird. Um, he's designing the creature for us. He was you know, my top choice when I realized, hey, we're going to do a werewolf. Let's call Daniel. <laughs> um, and I told him that I really wanted something really different for the transformation because I knew he was going to have to design the creature starting it as a human and going to a werewolf so I could you know, kind of figure out how to make these effects come to life. Mm -hmm. And so we chatted back and forth, and he came up with some fantastic ideas on how this transformation might happen. And uh, some of them are pretty nasty, actually. <laughs> really? I'm uh, looking forward to you know, designing all the effects for it. Oh, wow. 
Uh, but we are going to get something a little bit different than what you've seen in like American Werewolf or The Howling or anything like that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I mean, you also mentioned that you were sort of pushed into directing, um, mm-hmm. and you've never directed before. Is that correct? So I mean, you've been on film sets for a very long time, and and you've you know been ex- you're experienced in the industry. So, do you think that this is going to be a huge challenge for you? Um, I already know it's going to be a huge challenge. <laughs> for me. Um, I've already learned that um, I don't speak the same language as a film crew. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, when I'm working on a film, I come in just on the days they need me. I go in, I do my thing. The closest I've ever come to directing is directing a specifically an effect sequence because I knew more than the actual director did. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got talked into directing this one, I needed to pull out like my effects to director language dictionary <laughs> <laughs> because I would say things that mean something completely different to a camera crew. <laughs> oh, wow. And um, I've been fortunate, though. Um, uh, let's see, our DP, our uh, co-producer, a bunch of people on the camera crew, all have directing experience, so they've been really great about you know nudging me along and saying, "Okay, you need to do this," or "No, you don't say that." So I just pretty much show up and do my best impression of a woman who knows what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What do you, What do you think are going to be some of the biggest hurdles besides communicating uh, to the 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 crew there that's that's helping you? I mean, are you are you concerned at all with um, uh, drawing out uh, performance from the actors? Um, actually, that's not a big concern of mine because I am used to working with actors. Um, I'm used to working with them, you know, just from the effects experience. I have to tell people how they would react to certain types of injuries or how they would, you know, react prior to, you know, getting skewered or whatever on a scene. <laughs> so I'm really familiar with, with working with actors. Um, the challenge to me is just going to be visualizing the, uh, visualizing everything uh, dialogue-wise, because right. I'm used to, you know, being able to storyboard out action sequences and effect sequences, but when it comes to just, you know, two people in a room talking, trying to make that interesting is going to be a challenge for me. Wow. And uh, do you already have your, your cast selected for this? No, I don't. I'm one of those really strange people who don't believe in casting until we actually know when we're shooting. Right. I just... I see a lot of people who uh, cast immediately, and I understand that that's good for promotion, but then when they don't make their funding or something goes wrong and they don't have their dates set, they've pretty much you know, committed a bunch of people to not take other work, waiting around to see if, this, if you know, that project goes up. And I just really didn't want to do that to anybody. Um, I did have two actresses who I knew would strangle me if I didn't sign them on immediately. <laughs> I'm serious. I think uh, Kat O'Brien, who's playing uh, Carla, would have come over and killed me if I didn't cast her. Oh, no. (laughs) So I do have two roles cast, but everybody else, including our lead, so I'm waiting until we can actually say, okay, we are definitely starting on this date, clear your calendar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Do you mind if I jump back really quick here? Because I I was kind of curious about... uh, the effects themselves and the transformation and why do you why do you think that I mean obviously there has to be the the financial aspect of it but why do you think um, they've moved so many movies and it has moved from 
actual like mechanical physical transformation to digital transformations and and do you think that it's more or less realistic or has it paid off well i can only you know throw out my theories on it i think it's been done a lot lately because a it's the hot new thing and we know how hollywood likes to do the hot new thing yeah. and i think the other reason is because it's easier it's real easy to you know get somebody else to do all the CG work and then throw it into your film, and you're not spending, you know, a ton of time with a crew on set. You're not spending a ton of money, you know, with another production day or five. So I think that's why there's so much more CG. Um, as far as do I like it, very rarely, and especially not with creatures. They just seem like video games to me. Yeah. Yeah, I can yeah, definitely see um, that. I saw, what was it, the remake of Day of the Dead not too long ago, and I swear I was just watching somebody playing House of the Dead on on the uh, PlayStation or something. <laughs> yeah, oh man. And it's got to be at least mildly concerning, um, if not, I mean, seriously, for someone like you who... who, who this is your industry. I mean, this is what you do for a living. And, and the more that people are drawn away into this digital realm, you know what? And actually, maybe because it's so obvious uh, with so many of the movies, certainly movies with budgets that would, um, you know, like horror movies, for example, you're not going to get those big budgets like the action adventures out there, the fantasy movies. So um, maybe we'll actually see a resurgence. Do you think that would ever happen? Is a resur I started turning around in my question here. Do you think we're seeing a, a resurgence um, back to old school methods of um, crafting effects? I think we might. And um, this has a lot to do with just people I've talked to recently, ever since I started with Predatory. And of course, people you know, want to know more about it. It's, it's almost like a uh, timeline thing because the people who grew up on the old, you know, old school style horror movies like, you know, Friday the 13th and the, you know, monster stories like uh, American Werewolf, they're now at the age now where they're the ones who are making the movies. They're getting into it. Um, a lot of the filmmakers that I know personally are in the 35 to 45 age range right now and they're just starting. So I think that it's going to have a lot to do with how people are ingrained on how a monster movie should look. Mm -hmm. And you will always have the people who want to do the cutting-edge CGI thing, but you're also going to have those purists who want to do it, you know, the old-fashioned way. I mean, we still see black-and-white films being produced today because yeah. people miss the aesthetic of them. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I don't know, maybe because, you know, in the back of my head, I'm still sort of a purist in a lot of ways. I actually think even if it's pulled off well, a digital scene, if it's pulled off amazingly and, you know, you can hardly tell that it's digital, you still know as a viewer, as an audience member. And you still, I don't know, it's sort of like cheating nowadays. I mean, it's certainly, you know, the digital artists and um, motion graphics, ex, you know, people who, who are involved with this, they have talent, obviously, they have a vision. But to be able to literally have it happen in front of you, uh, in front of the camera, you know, traditionally, that's, I mean, that's like real magic instead of just, there seems to be a, more of an artistic expression and more of a technical expertise in um, the traditional way of doing it. So I, I'm hoping. It's because it's more tangible. Yeah. It's right there in front of you. You're not playing to a green screen. And um, I think that's what makes the difference, really. 
So, I, um, and for the audience, go to predatorymoon.com to check out um, all the information about the website. And we're going to be talking here shortly about Indiegogo and about the blood drive. Um, but really quickly, how far along in the technological process of this film are you now? I mean, you said you had the screenplay, you're working on the funding for it, um, you've already done some promotional stuff. Do you have, um, do you have anything else in the works? Right now, oh, right now we're uh, filling out the rest of our crew. Uh, the blood drive really kicked us in the butt to get that going. Mm -hmm. So we're filling out the rest of our crew now, and of course uh, Daniel's still working out the uh, the creature itself. I'm, I've just been pretty much, when I'm not promoting, I'm working on the prototypes, which are necessary for us to figure out how we're going to do the transformations. It's, that is definitely going to be the most you know, cost taking and uh, time-consuming thing in this whole thing. Yeah. And I've been beating off some actors with sticks, telling them I'm not auditioning until <laughs> at least January. <laughs> so that's uh, pretty much where we're at at this point. And then eventually I'm going to have to amaze my crew with my artistic abilities and actually do a storyboard. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, let's talk about the funding for this, because I think we are in an era of filmmaking where it is, it, is, it is more easier than ever to create a film, but um, you, it, it's, it's more challenging to find the money for it. So, so you can take a camera and you can go shoot whatever you want, but for it to actually feel real, for it to have that cinematic quality, it takes money to do that. Uh, how are you, are, are, um, what are you doing in order to uh, bring that money up? I, everything I can possibly think of. <laughs> I mean, uh, one of the reasons why Predatory Moon even came into existence is because we failed at finding investors for a much lar larger project that we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So, finding money, especially when you're, you know, technically an unknown filmmaker, is pretty hard. You basically need to win the lottery. Um, so, what we decided with Predatory is we sat down, we broke down the script, and thought, okay, what is the bare minimum amount of money that we're going to need in order to make this? And the number was pretty large. So, we started talking to people, started pitching the idea around to people, and all of a sudden, we started getting these resources being donated to us. Um, we partnered with a company called Walls Bend, who does amazing sound work. And they're bringing in all their equipment and whatnot to help us with the film, and that took a big chunk off the budget. Um, once we figured, once we had a budget that was, you know, feasible, it's like, okay, we can do this for, you know, we can do this for under fifteen thousand. So then we start pulling, okay, what's our financial resources? Okay, we got this, this, and this, and we're short this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we decided to go ahead and do a crowdfunding platform to try to raise the money so we can, you know, get us into production. So yeah, I mean, that, that seems to be a pretty common way that a lot of the you know micro-budget films get funded is through places like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Yeah, and is there a reason why you chose Indiegogo over the other um, funding options available? Yes, um, the one that's most popular is Kickstarter, and we did a Kickstarter campaign back when we did uh, Psycho Chicks Anonymous in 2010. The problem that we that we found with it is that it's an all or nothing type of campaign. If you if you raise even you know one dollar less than your goal, then you get nothing. Everybody gets refunded, um, and you're back on square one. 
since we knew that we could do Predatory Moon, regardless of if we actually made our campaign or not, we knew that we could, you know, we didn't have a time limit on it. Mm-hmm. We knew that if we didn't raise the money that we needed, we could set the production back a couple of months and go work other venues in order to, you know, make it happen. So we decided to go with Indiegogo, so that way any money that was donated to us could get into the production. We didn't have to, you know, sweat it if we were like a dollar short at right. the end of the campaign. That's actually a, a really fantastic way to do it. And that that was one of those things that I never really understood about the Kickstarter. I mean, I, I get as, as someone, if you're going to be do- donating a ton of money and then they don't end up making it, you'd get pissed off. But... You know, for something like this, where it, it is going to happen, it's going to take a little bit of time, and you know, you're just trying to to build that hype to help start the process a little bit earlier, or maybe a little bit—I mean, months earlier, or whatever it's going to take. Um, it makes sense not to lose all that funding just because you are a dollar short. I mean, I would be infuriated <laughs> if I was that person. Oh, I've I've seen it happen. I mean, I've seen campaigns that were you know maybe ten dollars short, and all of a sudden they lost everything. Oh and, man. You know, I do understand why it's important because you really, anybody can start one of these. You can have a, you know, 14-year-old in his living room saying, hey, I bet I can make this great movie. I just need you know, people to donate. <laughs> and they might raise, you know, the money and then never get around to doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I do understand why Kickstarter has an all-or-nothing platform. It's just not practical when it comes to people who know that they're going to be able to make the film regardless. Yeah. And, and certainly... I mean, I guess this goes into anything in life. I mean, you have to know what you're getting into. So if you're going to be donating money, you want to make sure that the people behind it, and in this case, professionals who have been in the industry for um, years and years, practical application of uh, special effects and um, script writing and storyboarding. And, you know, I mean, if, if there is a group that you can trust, I think, um, certainly I think you and uh, your, ca- your your team that you have right now are that group so you know no one should be worried about um, tossing you know whatever they can um, at this movie in order to get it made because it's going to be made and it's going to be made in an amazing way so uh, yeah I, I think that does help I mean we've been really you know trying to make sure that people understood that yes this is a huge crew it's a it's a huge undertaking um, we're actually you know even our core crew, or our key group is all are all different filmmakers, all from different outfits. We're all coming together to make this happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that having the reputation behind us has definitely helped us with uh, the fundraising as well. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about the fundraising itself, if we can. And, and certainly, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but people can actually get their um, uh, just navigate over to indiegogo.com/slash/predatorymoon, and you'll see all of the fundraising. Um, options there and this is sort of one of those things where uh, a lot of places want to incentivize for um, donating money they want to say you know if you're going to help us out give us some money we're going to give you a little something in return what are some of those um, kickbacks that you are offering well first of all anybody uh, it doesn't matter what amount it could be 50 cents it could be you know a thousand dollars anybody who donates we give a public howl out on our uh, Twitter feed, our, our Facebook feed, and of course our uh, our uh, website. But then uh, after that, uh, there's a bunch of different little things that we throw in for our you know, little perps. Uh, one of the ones that's popular is our um, we will 
once we get uh, to the day where we're filming the werewolves, we're going to take a picture of the uh, finished creatures and the people who uh, donated, you know, I think it's like $5 or something like that, will uh, actually get an email of what the creature looks like right there on the set. As soon as we know what the creature actually looks like, they're going to know what the creature looks like. Oh, cool. So, you know, we've been kind of doing the Cloverfield thing where we're not exactly showing everybody what we're up to. Yeah. Um, other further up the line, we've got. Uh, well, let's see. We have a necklace that we uh, made that was uh, cast from the actual claw that we're using for the creature. Oh, cool! And uh, let's see. We've also got a werewolf trophy head, kind of like you know those trophy heads you see for taxidermists. We'll be making that off of the sculpture that we're using for the werewolf's face and uh, neck. Oh, that would be awesome. And. I think we also have uh, an ability for people to actually make it a cameo appearance on the set, which we figured would be popular for people here in Florida yeah. who want to actually appear in the movie. Wow. So there's there's yeah. actually quite a bit of uh, different perks at different financial levels of donation that are available. So um, definitely go check it out, indiegogo.com slash predatorymoon to review them all and even if even if you don't want anything back and you just want to push a little bit into this, uh, go there, donate what you can. Um, let's see Predatory Moon um, in action and in production, and I'm really excited for this. So another way of drumming up um, excitement about this, and this I'm actually pretty damn excited about, um, you're doing something called a blood drive. Can you speak to that for a moment? Mm -hmm. Yep, the uh, blood drive is our... Our crew have been really excited about this whole thing, and they love the idea that we were not doing a zombie film, not doing a vampire film. Uh, everybody wanted to get together and uh, kind of show everyone how, you know, how our feelings were towards this thing. So we all got out there in the middle of a very, very cold day, <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere, and we proceeded to kill off six stereotypical Hollywood monsters. Yeah. And each time that we meet a certain milestone on our uh, Indiegogo fund, we will post a video of us doing away with you know one of these creatures. So that's how we decided on our blood drive. Very cool. So what's the first um, what's the first level for the first kill that you're looking at? Well, our first level is at fifteen hundred, and we will do away with one of the zombies that you see everywhere. Oh, nice. <laughs> Oh, very cool. And we were, we were actually uh, very fortunate that uh, uh, Daniel Bird was able to make it down for the uh, blood drive shooting. So he does, in fact, do the zombie in for us. Oh, really? So that's got to be a pretty big perk for the cast members, right? Are, are they, like, sort of vying for which one they want to kill? Um, actually, we all pretty much took turns. I mean, it, I would say that the blood drive was my first time ever directing, except for we were pretty much tagging off. <laughs> I mean, there were about 17 of us out there, and we all were going to be, you know, either in front of the camera or working effects or working makeup or, you know, so we pretty much were playing musical chairs with the, with the positions. So at, at some point during the entire blood drive shoot, everybody who wanted to get in front of the camera does, mm -hmm. whether they're playing a monster or whether they're playing one of the people who are killing a monster or, you know, we try to keep them amusing too, so they're funny little skits. Oh, fantastic. Um, and how many mo how many are there total that you're going to be killing off again? Um, I believe there's six. Oh, okay. Okay, so how close are we to that first one? I mean, how much do we need to push? Um, the last 
time I checked, I think we were we still needed six hundred and ninety five in order to get to the first one. Okay. Now, I checked this morning. I don't know if that's gone up or, yet or not. Right. Um, and this is actually going to be uh, released tomorrow, so hopefully it's gone up even more since then. But uh, let's see that zombie kill people. So if, if you can go to uh, predatorymoon.com or you can go to indiegogo.com slash predatorymoon, check out um, the offers, uh, sort of the rewards at different donation levels. Look at your budget. And think about what is worth to you to see some uh, real talented individuals making a film that you can be a part of, and donate a little bit to that um, if it's you know if if it's a, a feasible thing for you. I know uh, for a lot of people it's really kind of tough, but fifty cents is not going to break your bank. Ten dollars is probably not going to break your bank, and uh, for some of you, you know, fifty, a hundred, two hundred dollars is not that big of a deal either so do what you can and let's support shiva in this and let's get let's get some uh you know some monster killings going we all love that right if if you get all of your funding by the end of the indiegogo drive um which i believe it's in january that it ends uh yeah we end on january 2nd okay is that something that you can push back or i mean how are, how are you going to do that if um once you get to that that milestone are you gonna are you gonna start another one or um what you mean with the uh, with the blood drive or with the actual campaign itself? Well, with the campaign itself, I mean, y you know, I mean well, that's that's like a month away, right? Right, right. Well, it's the campaign itself has been running for since I think it was like the full moon in October, so it was like the 29th. Mm -hmm. um, once the camp once the campaign's over, with hopefully we would have made our funds or you know even better made over what we were asking for. Right. Um, as soon as we make those, we're going to go right into uh, casting and going straight into the hard part of pre-production. Uh, we'll probably, you know, run a few little things here and there to, you know, help, you know, act, act out as petty cash or something for the film. But basically, the idea is, as soon as Sucker's funded, we're going right into production, into producing it. Oh, fantastic! Well, I wish you the best of luck, and I really do hope that you get uh, more than the funds that you're requesting for this, because it, it seems like an awfully modest sum, in my opinion, to make a movie. Well, it does, but you, have, you do have to keep in mind that we do have a lot of other resources and, and other companies that are donating their time, resources, in order to you know get the film made. Very cool. So if we were starting from scratch, yeah, we'd be asking for a lot more. Yeah. Well, let's let's make this happen, people. Um, again, the website's Predatory Moon. I'm talking to Shiva Rodriguez. It is always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. That's going to do it for another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know if any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. The holidays are rapidly approaching and Nine Cents has provided. From Asp Apparel's official Nine Cents clothing accessories found at AspApparel.com. I've actually added some more clothing to it. To my children's book, How Crow Got a Scareback, found at Crow.AdamPCampbell.com. And my new project, Nine Cents Presents Satanists on Satanic Cinema, found at SatanistsOnSatanicCinema.com. What could be better than the holidays with nine cents? Celebrate Saturnalia in sin. You can visit Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace and learn about nine cents, 
Get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can subscribe to 9 Cents via iTunes by searching 9 Cents, and don't forget to leave a rating or comment if you do. And for those of you who do, thank you very much. I've been getting a lot, and I'm surpassing some really sort of uh, original Satanist podcasts. Keep it up. Let's be number one, people. That's what I want. A true Satanic voice representing Satanism in the podcast realm. You'd be shocked at how rare that is. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, the source for online satanic media. And once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, hail Satan!